BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Last year, as the U.S. pulled back its military forces, the Afghan government experienced a spectacular collapse. It culminated in the fall of Kabul on August 15, 2021, which touched off two weeks of airlifts out of the city as thousands of refugees fled the Taliban. Back then, we spoke with refugee relief agencies and Afghanistan experts about what might happen both here in the Bay and across the world. A year on, We're checking back with some of our sources, getting an update on refugee resettlement here, and trying to understand how the Taliban is actually ruling the country. That's all coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. A year ago at this time, Afghanistan was front page news. There was chaos at the airport, inevitable comparisons to Saigon, accusations flowing from and to the Biden administration. But after a month of evacuations, the situation slipped from the headlines, pushed out by economic questions and eventually the war in Ukraine. For the Afghan people at home and in the diaspora, of course, the turmoil is far from over. Taliban rule continues to deepen. But even a year in, it's not entirely clear how the leaders of the group will govern in Afghanistan that was wildly altered by 20 years of U.S. occupation, aid, and spillover corruption. Joining us first, we've got journalist Matthew Aikens, who has a feature in this weekend's New York Times magazine looking at the education of girls under the Taliban. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So when you you have a really deep history of reporting in Afghanistan, but when the Taliban took over this time, many American commentators publicly worried about what would happen to the women and girls of Afghanistan. Given your recent reporting, how would you describe how the Taliban has treated the women of Afghanistan over this past year? I guess it depends what you consider as the yardstick. You know, if it's some of the very dire predictions that were made last summer, um, where people thought the Taliban were going to come into Kabul and slaughter everyone, that they were going to keep 
women in their houses, they'd be beating them in the streets, that they'd be using some of the same repression that they did in the 90s during their first government, then clearly we haven't seen that kind of dire events. Um, but the fact of the matter is the Taliban have announced a lot of restrictions on women. They haven't allowed girls to go back to public high schools uh, in most provinces. When I was in Kabul in May, I spoke with a number of Taliban officials, and what was really interesting was how divided the movement seems to be over the issue. A lot of the Taliban I spoke to wanted the girls to go back to school. You know, they pointed out the girls are already back in elementary schools and universities, um, but they've been blocked by the hardliners in the movement, including the supreme leader in Kandahar, where true power lies. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about that. That's a fascinating part of your your story this weekend was, you know, kind of getting at is the is the Taliban kind of a stable power? You know, you've got the urbane or more urbane official government in Kabul, and then you've got this more conservative Kandahar shadow government. Well, that's actually, actually the setup that they had in the 90s during their first government where, you know, you did have the formal cabinet in Kabul, but you had Mullah Omar, who was then the supreme leader in Kandahar, and that's where true power lay. So a similar setup is being uh, replicated today. And I don't think we don't really have a good understanding of internal dynamics in Kandahar. We're not really engaging with them. Uh, we've been in, you know, there are talks between the U.S. and the Taliban. Right now, the West is, uh, you know, t- undergoing a massive humanitarian aid effort in Afghanistan. So, of course, that requires cooperation with the current government who are welcoming this aid, but we're kind of interfacing with Kabul. We're not really talking to Kandahar. And again, that's what we've seen with the schoolgirl decision. That's where true power in the movement lies. Yeah. You know, there was also an interesting component of your story that by some measures, in some places, there are actually more girls in school than there were before the Taliban took over. Like, how, how did that happen? Well, that's a function of peace coming to large parts of the country. So, one of the upsides of, of the end of the war, the end of the Republic, is that in the countryside, uh, especially in areas that bore the brunt of the fighting in the south and east of the country, there are security. Farmers are farming fields that they weren't able to access before, and a lot of families now feel more comfortable sending their girls to school. So there mm-hmm. has been, it seems to be, an increase in, in elementary schooling in, in rural areas. And uh, that's kind of a peace dividend that we're seeing in Afghanistan. And again, a lot of the Taliban I spoke to were perhaps more reform-minded, were really frustrated. They were kind of wasting this chance to rebuild the country um, by by blocking you know, high school girls and, and focusing on these kind of cultural war issues around bailing women uh, and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, and as you mentioned, I mean, building back the country is, is paramount. I mean, the situation is fraught and... You know, the U.S. is invested in preventing this humanitarian catastrophe, but it also has no, you know, serious official relationship with the government in control. So it, what role are the girls and women who want schooling, what role are they playing in this kind of geopolitical slash humanitarian struggle? Well, I think very often they're being used as a symbol by the various sides, like as they have been during these last 20 years when they were the poster children for our war. Um, you know, just recently, the Biden administration announced they're not going to be returning the Afghan bank assets that they seized. $7 billion in Afghan money that was held in, in New York banks has been frozen. And they're saying now they're not going to return that because the this leader of Al-Qaeda that was in Kabul that was killed in drone strike recently. Mm-hmm. Now, that puts the U.S. in a funny position because we're once the largest funder of humanitarian aid efforts in Afghanistan, which is facing a catastrophic crisis, half the population at risk of starvation. And we're also one of the main causes of the humanitarian crisis with these sanctions, with these seized bank assets. 
Mm. I mean, what do you think the U.S. should do? Well, I wish there was an easy answer to that. I think that we have to continue engaging pragmatically with the Taliban. So I don't. I think it's a mistake to stop talking to them. I think sanctions are not going to change. You know, be able to pressure a group that has spent the last twenty years withstanding drone strikes and night raids. Uh, and they're just going to immiserate the Afghan population further. So I think that what we need to do is not create an environment where it's going to cause more extremism, more poverty, and make it harder for the people inside Afghanistan who are standing up for their rights, who are trying to pressure the Taliban to be more inclusive. Um, that's not going to make it harder for them. Mm-hmm. So as I understand it, there is not a serious opposition to Taliban rule, like there's no, you know, uh, other government that could take over the government in waiting. What kind of opposition groups do exist, though, or, or pressure groups of, of the kind you're describing? Well, the main uh, threat to the Taliban right now is ISIS. And that's obviously a group that's more extreme than the Taliban. They've criticized the Taliban for accepting Western aid. That explains some of the re- reluctance to allow the girls back to schools because they're worried about these uh, extremist elements attracting fighters from the ranks. In terms of the resistance, the swift collapse of the Republic last year and the way that all these government officials abandoned their country has, I think, meant that there's no real credible opposition to the Taliban Mm -hmm. and no interest in supporting it from countries in the region. A lot of the neighboring countries, um, Russia, China, and and the U.S. as well have all stated both, and you can see it from their actions as well, that they don't want to fund and arm another round of the civil war in Afghanistan, which would be disastrous for all Afghans. But again, if we continue to see these kinds of terrorist groups finding safe harbor in Afghanistan, that could change. Mm. So we have this humanitarian situation where, you know, half the population uh, is, is, you know, in, in dire straits, particularly around food. And we know that around the world, there have been all these other food crisis issues how, how is that complicating the efforts and how much of it is logistical, like getting the food to the right places? And how much is there's literally just not enough food and aid that, that exists in Afghanistan right now? Well, there is actually a lot of aid in Afghanistan. That was one of the things I was surprised to find when I went back. I was kind of wondering, you know, there have been these dire predictions of the humanitarian crisis, but we haven't seen millions of people migrating, you know, or starving. And that's because it turned out that the World Food Program was feeding over the winter almost half the population with food aid. And that's costing billions of dollars. So it's an open question about how uh, sustainable this is with the increase in food prices. But you know, the other the other part of it is migration. Like, are we gonna see another refugee crisis? Like, I think um, you, you've, you, you've, you've, we've spoke about my book before and I, I traveled on the route undercover with Afghan refugees during the crisis in 2015. I've seen the border walls that exist you know that have been set up and europe has fortified them since then helped cage afghans inside their country but it, at some point we may see those kind of large population movements again so how do you think based on your reporting the taliban will continue to govern do you see a path towards liberalization and normalization of relations with the west do you see normalization but without any change in the way that the government is working I don't think in the short term we're going to see any kind of recognition of the Taliban by Western governments. Um, This has been been a big step backwards with first the girls' schools and now the drone strike on the leader of al-Qaeda in Kabul. So there's no normalization on the horizon, I don't think, for the U.S. 
And I'm worried that it could lead to a situation where there's just further isolation and immiseration of Afghanistan. But in the region, there is a lot of um, contact happening between neighboring countries, Russia and China. They've accepted Taliban diplomats. I think it's in the pragmatic interest of everyone that for as long as the Taliban, you know, are sort of the they're not going if they're not going anywhere, then, then people have to work with them. And I do think that that is going to be for the benefit of the Afghan people who have who have suffered so much and are still suffering and for whom we bear a tremendous responsibility for because of the, the last uh, you know 20 years of, of failed uh, war efforts and, and chaos and corruption that we brought to that country. Well, and you also were able to get evidence that the that at least some Western powers like Germany are preparing to have reopen embassies and and really engage in a more full way. Yeah, I mean, this is all happening because of realpolitik, you know, for in the case of Germany, what their main interest is reestablishing some kind of mechanism to uh, deport Afghans back to Afghanistan. You know, the, the number one strategic interest of, in Europe is preventing refugee flows from Afghanistan. So um, I believe that that, you know, is probably driving European policy, which is further ahead than than the U.S. in terms of reestablishing a diplomatic pre- presence for the U.S. is counterterrorism. And I think what I what I reported in the piece is that when you have these kind of setbacks at the official level, you know, when the Taliban does something like uh, keep the girls out of school, then the relationship devolves to. Uh, the secret level to, to intelligence cooperation, and you had the CIA, CIA station chief go after the girls' school, um, you know, closure in March. So the CIA, CIA station chief traveled instead to Kabul uh, in April, and that was a secret visit. So these so countries are dealing with the Taliban, but they're just dealing with it, I think, on the basis of their very narrow mm-hmm. interests. When there's so much frustration over the Taliban's domestic policies. We are talking about the one-year anniversary of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the Taliban takeover and how things are going. I've been joined in this first segment by Matthew Akins, author of The Naked Don't Fear the Water, An Underground Journey with Afghan Refugees. Also contributing writer for The New York Times Magazine has a big piece in the most recent uh, issue of the magazine out on Afghanistan. We'd love to hear from you. Have you been affected by the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, your family or, or yourself? You can give us a call 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. When we come back from the break, we're going to check in with some of uh, local Afghan uh, refugees and aid groups. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. It was a year ago today that Kabul fell to the Taliban. We're checking in with our local Afghan community and talking about the future of Af- the Afghan people, both here and in Afghanistan. Uh, joined by Matthew Akins, author of The Naked Don't Fear the Water, an underground journey with Afghan refugees, also a contributing writer for The New York Times Magazine. Want to add in three other voices. Uh, Ahmad de la Mauj is an Afghan refugee living in Fremont who worked as a, a civil engineer for the U.S. government in Afghanistan. Welcome to the show, Mauj. Thank you very much, Alexis. Also joined by Zahal Bahadori, uh, executive director and co-founder of the Five Pillars Organization, a nonprofit formed to help Afghan refugees in the Bay Area after the withdrawal. Welcome. Thank you. Grateful to be here. Grateful to have you. And we're joined by uh, Joseph uh, Azam, a board member with the Afghan American Foundation, a nonpartisan nonprofit focused on advocating on behalf of Afghan of uh, the Afghan American community. Welcome back to the show, Joseph. Thank you. Thank you for having us, Alexis. Uh, Mauj, let's start with you. I mean, you fled to the U.S. as the Taliban takeover was proceeding, now in Fremont. Can you tell me what your last year has been like? Um, what a year it was. It was such a, a horrific um, days as it started. Um, and... Um, um, it was filled with a lot of uh, uncertainties uh, and uh, the process that um, we uh, uh, we resettled was also very, very um, full of challenges. Um, and um, I, I, every time that I think about the, the year that passed, um, we, me, myself and my family uh, are, uh, can't be enough thankful uh, for the opportunity and the space given to us uh, to um, breathe freely and uh, to be at safety. Uh, but at the same time, um, uh, we are also very anxious and, and worried about what has happened to back home and uh, how will things change or affect us and uh, here as well as for those who are left behind. Yeah. So who were you able to leave with when you, and what was the path that you, that you took from Kabul to Fremont? So I left with my immediate family, which in, uh, includes uh, my wife and my daughter, uh, my baby daughter. And she, uh, we were um, um, advised by the officials or our supervisors at the U.S. Embassy uh, that you can only bring them uh, along with you. And for your extended family, which is my mother and family and my sisters, they would have to wait and they would go in another round of uh, mm. evacuation. Or, and But that never happened because of the chaos in the airport as well as because of the insecurity and the crowds uh, around the airport. So... Um, we are uh, we got separated and uh, it was uh, it is a, a nightmare uh, for my family uh, back home uh, thinking uh, of uh, how 
we just disappeared and overnight overnight because we went once we couldn't get in but we thought we we uh, uh me myself and my other colleagues working for the at the u.s government embassy we this they thought that we might be at very uh, risk of uh, being identified so we went back mm-hmm. home and hiding somewhere at our friend's house uh, we didn't go our own house uh houses and um the next time when we were we wanted to leave to the air to the airport we did not tell even to our very very close family members and relatives and we went in hiding so um that that, that disappearance is always something my little sister talks to me and says that it's like you just disappeared and the next time we heard you were in abu dhabi oh. so what was your arrival in the bay area like Mm-hmm. So we spent like one and a half month uh, in a, mili- a military base in Virginia, and um, that was uh, a, a, a very, very different story, a different challenge itself on its own. Because, uh, uh, but um, you know, uh, my wife would always tell me, "Is this the is this the U.S. that we would hear about, or is this mm-hmm. the is this going to be our life?" Because it was. Basically, putting uh, uh, families and military um, uh, barracks and room mm-hmm. and quarters. So the arrangements and everything was really challenging. But uh, thankfully, later on, as time went by, the, the agencies active, uh, uh, which were active, they really improved the services and treatment. Uh, but um, we had to leave there because my wife was pregnant and we couldn't stay and, and uh, be on the conditions uh, there. And uh, we, when I came to, when I decided to uh, come to California, it was a very hard decision because every agency was telling us to not choose choose Virginia or California because it's overpopulated already with the Afghan population with Afghan uh, Afghans and other immigrants and the prices are very uh, high for housing and living here but we had to because we were already uh, um, away from a family and we had some extended family here so we mm. thought we would be at home somehow um, but it was very hard to find a house here uh, f- uh, and to rent it because the kind of criteria for someone to and the requirements for someone to rent a house is so uh, hard for someone who is a newcomer and uh, and the resettlement agencies were overwhelmed and um, but um, um, yeah I mean I had to uh, look around uh, and find figure out uh, what were their requirements and meet them and understand those uh, but many I would say the majority I I've, uh, I know they they couldn't really uh, find a way and they stayed in the camps for longer and they also uh, still are not in their desired destination or uh, places. Yeah, you start a new job tomorrow. Am I that right? <laughs> That's very right. So uh, after after like uh, a lot of uh, um, you know um, a lot of challenges that I went through, this is the best relief I'm getting uh, and the best reward I'm getting uh, for the one decade that I gave for my career and my education in my country. Uh, so um, I'm very very happy to be 
resuming my career and, uh, and my work uh, in the area or in the field of study that I used to pursue back home, uh, which is uh, construction engineering. And uh, when I, uh, and the most fascinating part of the, this, uh, uh, this, uh, this event in my life is that my experiences in education that I uh, had earned back home in Afghanistan are being uh, are coming at use uh, for uh, starting my first job as a quality control manager for a construction site uh, in San Francisco. And um, this is very, very uh, encouraging for me and my family that um, uh, the hard work that we uh, um, did uh, together um, for our country, for our education is paying off and in a very uh, in a very, very surprising way, uh, we have heard stories that people have to start from very uh, um, uh, scratch and uh, forget about their dreams, aspirations, and whatever achievements they had back home. But thanks to the, the very dynamic uh, economy and um, background and the culture, work culture in the U.S. that allowed me to present myself and um, and and uh, start my uh, career here and try to achieve what I would like yeah. to for my country and people. Wow, what a story. Uh, Ahmad de la Mauch, thank you. Thank you so much, I mean, for sharing this with us. And I'm where we heard so many bad stories a year ago, uh, so many difficult situations. I'm so glad that, um, at least in your case, this is, this is really working out. And I, I want to bring in Zahal Bahadori, uh, who runs the Five Pillars organization. Zahal, you know, Mauj obviously has a very good story, but we know that many other Afghan refugees have not had as solid a landing here in the Bay Area. Can you tell us about some of the challenges that, that people have faced? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thank you. Um, first, I'd like to say, you know, today marks the one year of the oppression, brutality, and violence of the Taliban. The majority of people in Afghanistan are under such extreme oppression, denied basic human rights, and met with violence when they peacefully resist, such as we saw this past weekend. This situation impacts resettlement because families here are worried constantly about their loved ones, as Mauj had mentioned, who are left behind, constantly thinking how they can help their loved ones back home. You know, we work with families who have been separated, families dealing with depression, children without their mothers, talent trying to rebuild their life. In this situation with Mauj, you know, his his resilience and you know he took a proactive step and took control of his situation, his resilience. You know, he was able to secure a job that recognizes him for his talent, his expertise and the knowledge, you know, and that's all families have are afforded such, um, you know, such opportunities. The areas of need that we're seeing, as one Maj has mentioned already, a permanent feeling of a home, housing, but affordable, so they don't have to move out to the outskirts of NorCal, where there is not many opportunities nor community for support. And it has to be accessible. Again, as Mauj mentioned, you know, there's these criteria and parameters to be able to rent. You know, property managers and landlords, we need them to work with us to bypass some of the traditional requirements for renting a unit. That's one major area. Legal services is the next one. We need more pro bono lawyers to assist with immigration cases to apply for asylum. Those are the, the top two. And I would say the next one would be um, sense of belonging, that community integration. But this sense of belonging comes also in the form of recognizing them for who they are, as mentioned, 
um, uh, earlier. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, one of our young families um, was in his third year of dentist school in Afghanistan. He was forced to evacuate. And now our team of volunteers was able to enroll him in Shiloh College. And he's looking into a dental hygiene program, possibly having to restart those three years he studied. Mm. You know, um, what about the housing side of things? Um, have you been able, like, everybody struggles with housing here. And, you know, as we heard from Mouch, there's a whole other layer and set of complexities associated with refugees coming here trying to find housing. So how have you been navigating that throughout the Bay Area? So when it comes to the housing situation, you know, it's we're dealing with a crisis within a crisis. Mm-hmm. And so when our families come to us and they they say they need they need assistance for finding an affordable housing unit. We get creative with our approach and our volunteers will literally assist them with searching for affordable homes and securing that for them, filling out the applications and talking to the landlords and the property managers, trying to convince them to work with us. Um, and also explain the dire situation in the background of the family we're working with to try to secure that um, to secure a home. So in most situations, this has worked out, but if it doesn't, then we move on to the next. So we just had to get creative and, you know, we've come so far and it's been all on community support. Um, We've had also, you know, thanks to another community angel, um, she had reached out and offered her a rental unit for for free for a year for um, for a refugee family. So it's community support like that that has really helped us um, be able to to secure homes for these families. Yeah. Joseph, uh, as I wanted to bring you in on sort of the the bigger picture of the refugee crisis, you've been working on some of the policy problems that would make things easier for people who've arrived and are trying to get their footing. Can you tell us about how that's been going? Sure. I mean, first of all, I just want to congratulate Maush on, on this tremendous accomplishment and, and Zahal and her organization for their tremendous work. Um, I think what they're talking about feeds into what I'm about to talk about in that you know, the, the thing that's really the most important right now is getting people permanent safety and permanent status. And so, Alexis, the biggest policy issue right now before Congress is the recently introduced bipartisan Afghan Adjustment Act. Um, this is a law that would just introduced path- last week, right? I'm very- just last week. Yeah, by, by by like six very courageous senators, you know, both parties. And what this would do is it would create a pathway to permanent status and safety for the 76 Afghans who were evacuated by the U.S. and brought here. Uh, and, and the things that Maush talked about, work, the things that Zohal talked about, housing, belonging, all of that's wrapped into this notion that, you know, folks are building lives here and Congress needs to signal that they acknowledge that and that this is home. And so from a policy perspective, Alexis, domestically, that is the number one thing right now. And I think, you know, if you look at the calendars, we have about 50 days for this to get done. Um, Now, there are a whole host of other things that are at local and state levels that are very, very important. But none of that matters if these folks don't have peace of mind and don't have permanent status to stay. Right. So that that's been our focus for the last couple of months and it will be for the coming weeks. I want to bring in uh, Elizabeth from Sebastopol, who has some um, questions on these visa issues. Welcome, Elizabeth. Hi. Um, I hope you can hear me. I'm yep, pulling sure over. <laughs> Hi. I um, have been on the phone um, or WhatsApp and Signal all morning with my friends in Afghanistan and Pakistan who are kind of mired in the special immigrant visa process and um, have been for some of them for years. And these are the guys 
well, got men and women, in this case men, um, who were uh, interpreters and worked on the military bases and were promised, um, you know, a way out with their government and never got it um, or have been, you know, their, their immigrant visas have been okayed, but they're still stuck in Afghanistan or in one case in Pakistan because he fled Afghanistan. Or in another case, a friend of mine in Colorado whose wife is wife and two-year-old daughter are stuck in Afghanistan. And he was a, he was a military interpreter who saw with uh, U.S. forces who saw a lot of action, and he can't even get his wife over here. So I haven't really heard the SIV issue addressed in months, though mm-hmm. it was a lot in the very beginning. And I'd I just like to, yeah. to hear more about that. But Joseph, this one seems perfectly teed up for you. Yeah, it's a great question, and Elizabeth, you're right. It has kind of slipped from the headlines, but I draw your attention to the fact that it is being litigated. Our foundation filed an amicus brief a couple of months ago because the Biden administration is actually trying to get out of a Congress congressionally mandated court-ordered plan to improve this program, right? And I'd note that of the 76,000 people that are here, 40,000 of them were either SIVs, SIV applicants, or SIV eligible, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that's who's here, but but she's exactly right. These are the men and women who provided life-saving assistance to American troops for years, right? And it was in recognition of that service that Congress passed the SIV law that created the program. And, and there are some applications that are sitting for eight or nine years. And Congress has said it should take nine months, so that's the level of dysfunction we're dealing with. And these are this is how we treat our most ardent allies. These people were the closest to us, right, and served the longest. So she brings up a fantastic point, because I think that that is um, that's a that's the paradigm right now of how we're treating Afghans. And it's symptomatic of a, a broader disregard for the bonds and the service that exists between our two people. Yeah. And and just double checking, the Afghan Adjustment Act would not actually fix the special immigrant visa program. It would take people who were on a temporary status and make it easier for them to have permanent status. That's a great question. Actually, it would improve the, the situation for SIVs because baked into there uh, are provisions that address the backlog mm. and the lack of resources from the State Department to pay attention to this program. So it's a great question, Alexis, because it, it actually reaches beyond the shores of the U.S., and touches on this very important SIV issue. That's that's a big, um, big, big point of contention for the veterans community, especially, uh, and certainly for the Afghan American community, because many of our family members served in this way. And so the, the act, if it's passed, would make a difference in this way. Thank you. We're checking with the local Afghan community on the one-year anniversary of the fall of Kabul in Afghanistan. We're joined by a bunch of people, and we're going to get to some more calls um, right after the break. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are checking with our local Afghan community as well as experts on Afghanistan on the one-year anniversary of the fall of Kabul. We're joined by Joseph Azam, board chair of the Afghan American Foundation, a nonpartisan nonprofit focused on advocating on behalf of the Afghan American community. We're also joined by Sahal Bahadori, uh, executive director and co-founder of the Five Pillars organization, which has really been on the ground. Uh, a nonprofit that was formed to help Afghan refugees in the Bay Area after the withdrawal. And Amadullah Mauj, uh, an Afghan refugee living in Fremont, uh, worked as a civil engineer for the U.S. government in Afghanistan. Now, happily getting to work as a civil engineer here uh, in the United States. And we're also joined by Matthew Akins, author of The Naked Don't Fear the Water, an underground journey with Afghan refugees. Also has a huge story in the New York Times magazine uh, about the current state. Uh, of Afghanistan. Let's get to uh, some more calls um, from people. Uh, who's saying? Let me if I can click on your uh, button here. Um, uh, we'll see. Let's. Well, uh, let me ask th- this question. Oh, Hussein, there we are. You're there. Um, yeah. Welcome to the show, Hussein. Thank you. Good morning. Um, I'm the CEO of a company called Afghans Without Farmers. Those citizens of Afghanistan that arrived in the Bay Area or in the United States, they're a thousand percent better off than the 39 million people that are that were left behind. And there was from the World Food Organization an announcement in in February that 23 million people out of the 39 will face starvation mm-hmm. within the next six months. So at that point, we decided that we have to procure enough money to buy a thousand tractors, send it to Afghanistan, and train the youth in Afghanistan to this so that these thousand tractors could be divided into 34 uh, provinces according to their arable land. Now, we cannot, from the United States, send them food year after year indefinitely or from European countries or from China, Russia. Nobody's going to just feed them forever. So we have to enable the youth in Afghanistan because those within the last 20 years, their parents sold their cows, the, the, the bulls that were plowing the ground, and their plows already rusted. So we have to think of a different way of growing the land. We have the land, but we don't have the people, the human force to do it. So I think this is a a way that could enable those people that were left behind. Mm -hmm. And we really need everybody's help. Yeah. Hussein, thank you uh, so much for this uh, for this comment. I, I, Matthew, because I might take it to you, which is how does Afghanistan begin to reach self-sustainability? You know, no, both people there and, you know, Western humanitarian aid groups, both 
don't want this to be the situation. Um, but what does that rebuilding look like and how long might it take? Well, you know, Afghanistan was one of the most aid dependent states in the world. And then that aid was cut off, leading the predictable consequence of a collapse. The fact of the matter is the government is being forced to be self-sufficient right now. The Taliban have actually, you know, uh, reduced a lot of the corruption, the checkpoints they've dismantled on the highways. They've increased centralized um, collection of customs revenues. They're trying to pass a balanced budget this year, believe it or not. It's meaning a lot of belt tightening and privation. But in, in a sense, self-sufficiency is being forced on the country. Um, you know, I think we, we in the West really have to think carefully about whether or not we want to allow the Afghan economy to stand on its own feet. And that means ending the sanctions, uh, recapitalizing the banking sector by returning these seized deposits, and normalizing some degree of you know, economic relations. It doesn't necessarily mean recognizing the Taliban or giving them a free pass on human rights issues. But right now, what's happening in the country amounts to collective punishment for an entire nation. And that means they're... Joseph, as I'm, you know, as I'm listening to uh, Matthew talk, I was wondering if, do you feel like that is the path, the one that he's describing here towards, you know, a better Afghanistan? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I might have taken issue with some of Matthew's earlier statements about what the actual situation on the ground is and how dire it is and dire it isn't. But I agree with him on this, that um, collective punishment has is not going to work. Sanctioning the Taliban did not prevent them from ascending. Um, and at this point, you know, we have to have some nuance to how we look at this and normalizing economic relations to an extent to help 40 million people does not equal legitima- legitimizing the Taliban. So I think Matthew's exactly right. You know, the focus should be through a humanitarian lens. And at the end of the day, um, you know, we have to make sure that Afghans survive long enough to do what we hope they can do, which is to take back their country to build a representative government that's inclusive of minorities, religious and ethnic, where women have the ability to be full citizens. And Afghanistan's population, Alexis, which is one of the youngest in the world, is able to have its potential unleashed again. So I agree with Matthew entirely that our focus should be on enabling those people to do this for themselves. And it's not going to happen by starving them. We'd love to hear from you again. We're talking about Afghanistan one year after Kabul fell to the Taliban. Uh, have you been affected by the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan? The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, it's KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. One listener writes on Instagram, why would refugees go to the most expensive city in the USA? They could have easily gone to Indiana or Ohio where they could have found more affordable housing and smaller communities. Living in San Francisco would make it much harder to live in the USA for the average American citizen. Mauj, I wanted to ask you this question and then Zahal, I'm going to get your perspective as well. Why here? Oh, uh, definitely. That is a question that I was repeatedly asked, uh, but uh, but uh, I think there there it has so many uh, aspects. Uh, first, I would uh, um, I would recall to the um, Afghan community that is existing already here, mm-hmm. and second, the economic opportunity that exists in the big cities compared to the uh, r- rural areas or in uh, places where there is not so much uh, econ- like uh, opportunities for newcomers. And third, I would, uh, you know, I would consider um, 
you know the climate and the, um and and like the weather uh, which is a very uh, which role plays a very important role for a newcomer and when they are having a culture shock already mm. um so um uh, they would definitely choose uh, somewhere which is closer to the place uh, they, they're coming from mm -hmm. so um they, they were the reasons not only for me but for most of the afghans but and i know and and coming to the first reason i would say like when they when i mean the community it's not that you have, should have like just your neighbors or your uh, um you know uh, you the, the the mosque that you're going or to the or, or to the job place that your workplace that you're going that there should be people from your home country but it's about those uh, community support uh, bodies and organizations like five pillar organization which is a whole uh, representing um, the existence of those organizations exactly those community support uh, uh, organizations have um, gives a lot of confidence uh, for the newcomers to uh, to uh, continue their pursuit of a new life in a, in this new uh, culture in new uh, country um for example when we came to the to fremont i, I could uh, uh, i could uh, seize a rental apartment for myself but we did not have a bed for two weeks mm. Until we got a bed mattress from uh, Five Pillar Organization as Indonesian, or, or or we got support for our first rent from a Jewish family organization in in in, in the Bay Area. So those organizations um, 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 are really present uh, and really active, and the, it is uh, forming a support system for the newcomers. And once they are settled, once they have like uh, the you know the, uh, we have seen Afghans and uh, other. Um, majority immigrants moving out of these big cities because this is where they start up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Zaha, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I couldn't say it um, better than Mao said it. You know, from what we're hearing too is, you know, what us, when, when they come over and see where fellow Afghans doing this work, they, they feel a sense of home, trust, community. And from there, we connect on a deeper level and we knew our work was not over. Um, it's a feeling of home when they see us. We speak their tongue. We know their culture. We know and can relate to their pain and struggles. Yeah. yeah. Let's bring in um, a couple more callers. Um, Paul in Mill Valley. Welcome. Thank you, Alexis. Uh, excellent program. Can you hear me okay? Yes, yeah, sure can. Go ahead. Great. I, I run a small organization called the Charity and Security Network. And in a nutshell, we are a network of a couple of hundred organizations that do humanitarian and peacebuilding work around the world. We ourselves don't do the work. We advocate on behalf of these groups. And your first guest did a great job of outlining how a country like Afghanistan is so dependent on aid and not just civil society or nonprofit organization aid, but governmental aid. And U.S. And, and U.N. sanctions create incredible obstacles to delivering such aid because these organizations are very nervous about crossing the line of legality. And so I want to raise just the larger point that as, as Americans, if we want to help people in Afghanistan or Yemen or Syria or Cuba, um, we have a voice. And we need to point out that, as, as your guest said, penalizing an entire nation for the behavior of a regime is not not only is it not effective, but it, I think it's morally repugnant. Now, what can be done? You can talk to our elected officials. We can point out that there are better alternatives and that sanctions, while politically expedient, 
really are condemning human beings to to continued suffering. The Biden administration has done some good work on this. They have issued licenses that allow these groups to behave, uh, to operate their programs. But the financial institutions that that create the um, channels of funding Mm. are very, very nervous, as you can imagine. I mean, if you're the Red Cross, that's one thing. If you're Wells Fargo or Chase, you get very nervous about transmitting money to Talib, to, to not to the Taliban, I should say, but to Afghanistan. And so I'd be very curious what your callers or what your guests have to say about how ordinary citizens, aside from helping refugees directly, can have a political voice to help break some of these log jams. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, Paul Milvalli. Uh, Matthew, you reported on some of the networks that have developed to sort of channel aid in ways that kind of move through or around these sanctions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the remarkable things that we're seeing in Afghanistan is the resilience of all these informal structures that have really developed of conflict. And they have, um, for example, the traditional Hawala money lending system. That's basically how cash is getting in and out of the country unless it's being physically flown in. There are, there's a, the traditional money lenders who have basically taken over for the banks and allowed money to get in and out of the country. Um, the Afghan diaspora is very important in that. So I think we have to look at this, this issue in a, in a bigger context. So things like sanctions, but not just sanctions, I think uh, money laundering laws, visa restrictions, you know, Afghans have adapted to what has been 40 years of civil war by by migrating, that has really been a survival strategy for so many pa- families. You know, they go abroad to uh, Pakistan and Iran, first and foremost, but also the Middle East, to Europe, to the United States. It's not a one-way journey. Often the first thing, I'm sure our other callers, our other guests can speak to this, one of the first things Afghans do when they get somewhere and, and get status is they want to go back and see their relatives. And so that's helping to sustain the country right now. And when we have restrictive immigration laws that make it harder for people to settle, when we have, um, you know, aggressive anti-terrorism laws that are cutting off financial transactions through informal money lending networks, um, you really attack the fabric of, of, of this community's survival mechanism. Mm. So I would frame it in that larger way when, if we want to understand this as a political problem, that it's linked to issues like uh, immigration and visas as well as um, sanctions. Yeah. Joseph, do you want to uh, get in on that, Joseph Azam? Yeah, no, I think Matthew made, made the right point. I mean, I think just last week, 60 or 70 leading economists um, sent a letter to President Biden asking for precisely what Matthew's describing. And so I think what he's advocating for and what we advocate for is a reimagination of how we move Afghanistan to a place where the Afghans want it to be, right? And punitive measures at this point are not going to do it. So I would actually short of describing it myself, I'd refer everybody to a great report Human Rights Watch put out last week called The Economic Causes of Afghanistan's Humanitarian Crisis. In that, they actually lay out very, very detailed recommendations on what the U.S. and international community can do. And today, that's been one of the best documents I've seen, but it tracks very closely what Matthew's saying, which is to focus on getting liquidity back into the economy, getting Afghans the ability to, to live their lives, buy food and buy services, and, and then let them do what hopefully they can do, which is to ask for a government and a society that represents them and includes them. Yeah. Just so everyone knows that that report was called The Economic Causes of Afghanistan's Humanitarian Crisis, if you're Googling that out there. Um, let's bring in Kathy in Fremont. One last call. Welcome, Kathy. 
Hello, good morning. This is Kathy Kimberlin. I am the field representative for Alameda County Supervisor David Halbert. And uh, I love what's been said. I love the, the positive uh, spin, but the need, the, the spin also that there's still a great need out there. Wanted to just do a shout out to a couple agencies that our office has been working with that I have seen collaborate from not collaborating, not knowing each other even existed, to um, being a, a circle of support and help and resources for the families that are coming in and, the, and the, the folks that are coming in from Afghanistan. The Five Pillars is an organization we've worked very closely with. They have stepped way up. Fremont Families uh, Resources, Fremont Family Resource Center, also the Social Services of uh, Alameda County, International Rescue Committee, Jewish Family and Community Services. We came from not knowing each other to making a circle of support, and I know there's a lot more to be done, but let's, let's really applause the work that has been done and the lives that have been, met, been made better, and people are taking steps forward. And what's the best thing to see is the people coming here want to be a part of America. They want to be a part of Fremont. They want to be a part of Alameda County or Sacramento or Modesto, and they're embracing it. They want to work and they want to have friends. So I hope that's a great note to end on, and thank you, everyone. Thanks, uh, Kathy. Appreciate that. Uh, Zahal, you just got a shout-out from the local government here. What can people do to help you? Thank you so much for that shout-out. I'm very familiar with Kathy Kimberlin, and I just want to say thank you to her and her office. From day one of this crisis that happened, she was alongside us providing support. Um, and, you know, it's, it's support like that, that really has allowed us to make such a large impact. We have a strong cross-sector collaboration effort where one is not able to fill the need, they forward the case to another and vice versa. I also wanna mention how extremely proud I am of the Bay Area Avian community who rose immediately into action, raising awareness, leading donation drives, meeting new arrivals to translate and assess their situation to make sure they were receiving support. I'm so proud to be a Bay Area Afghan, you know, as well as you know, we teamed up with the city of Hayward to create the first donation hub for Afghan refugees in Northern California. Um, it, it's, it's collaboration like this um, and community support that has allowed us to be able to welcome with dignity and respect our Afghan newcomers. Yeah. Yeah. Th- thank you so much, Zahal, and congratulations. Thanks for all, all you've done for the community. We have been checking with the local Afghan community on the one-year anniversary of the fall of Kabul and the complete Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. We have been joined by Zahal Bahadori, co-founder and executive director of the Five Pillars organization, Joseph Azam, board chair of the Afghan American Foundation, Amadullah Mauj, Afghan refugee living in Fremont, starts a new job tomorrow. Congratulations, Mauj. And Matthew Akins, author of The Naked Don't Fear the Water, an underground journey with Afghan refugees and a contributing writer for The New York Times. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Ariana Prail. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.